This is the MIT Alumni Books Podcast. I'm Joe McGonigal, writer for the MIT Alumni Association. If you made a word cloud out of Judith Doneth's new book, The Social Machine, the word balance might appear more frequently than any other. Donath, who like many of us has watched her share of cat videos and flamed her share of newbies in chat rooms, thinks about the notion of balance in the digital world a lot. Balance between identity and anonymity, between text and graphic, and between connection and isolation. While many debate exactly who invented the internet, Donath seems concerned with whether it was worth inventing to begin with, and possibly who will reinvent it. The Social Machine, published by MIT Press in May, is a book for those who may want to do so, but it's also for those who inhabit those design digital spaces. Donath, who earned her master's and PhD at MIT in 1986 and 1997, is a faculty fellow at Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Judith Donath, what prompted you to write this book now? The time was ready for it, and also I had left MIT. I had this legacy of ideas and work, and felt that there were a lot of themes and ideas that I needed to put together into a coherent space where the relationships among them would show. The first few chapters seem at least like a chronicle of your work at the Media Lab over the years. There's a mix in the book between projects that I had done with my students, partly because some of the ideas that we explore really haven't been looked into. There weren't other examples, but also because I felt, as you said, I'm very interested in balance. And knowing I can look at these works and know what it is we had tried to achieve. So it's not such a chronicle of here are all of our accomplishments, but it's also a way of showing these were the big ideas we were trying to get at here. And as with many, both demos, but even real products, I think it's important for people to see where the goal and the actual created object differ, because the technologies are still not there for a lot of the things we want to do. So I think it was also a way of helping people who see technologies as received wisdom. They're, you know, they see them as end products, but they're really always a process. And part of what I'm hoping to accomplish with the book is getting people to understand how they can critique the technologies they deal with on an everyday basis and to say, you know, I, this is what I would like to have as opposed to what I've been given. You seem to be setting out a model for how to think about this stuff for the ordinary user in behaving online. Right. And part of it is that the technologies change so fast, it's very hard for people to always understand what's possible, where we're just design decisions made that are somewhat arbitrary versus the ones that were really necessary. Um, a couple of times I've been a critic for architecture classes at um, Harvard, and I'm not an architect, but I or most other people can walk into a crit like that and be able to look at a student's work and have something useful to say, because we all understand what a house does and what it's supposed to do, and we can look at them and say, wow, that seems really cool and innovative, or, you know, there's some really practical problems with this. It's harder with online designs because people don't even have a way always of, artic of articulating what they want. And until a technology is there, you know, until Facebook existed for a lot of people, they would never have thought that they wanted that technology. But now that it exists, it's really useful for them. But it's, they don't have the experience to say, well, what does it not do that I wish it would do? And that's some of the ideas I'm hoping to prompt in people to say, you know, these are the ways I would like to be handling privacy, or I 
connect it more clearly about how I'm represented online, where other people are, or what do I want to do with all the past conversations that I've had? Uh, it seems like you have some concerns about us taking connection for granted and the idea of being connected. Well, I think we have to look at both the changes in technology and the changes in our society as a whole. The computer is helping us connect more easily to other people. Um, Twenty years ago, the idea that you could be part of a massive conversation with hundreds of people on some interesting topic where the participants were all over the globe was you know, completely fanciful, and today it's commonplace. On the other hand, um, we can also say that the technologies are making our connections less necessary, and in some ways, loosening the bonds that held us together. Um, one, uh, one example is, if you look at something like Google, I just came back from a trip with my kids to Europe, and I was able to plan this whole trip by myself. I didn't really ask anyone I knew for a lot of advice. I was able to search online for, you know, what the train schedules were, what cities was it really feasible to go between. I read the reviews of strangers on TripAdvisor, but I put together what turned out to be a perfectly fun trip, but I didn't have to call all my friends who'd ever traveled. I didn't have to go around asking people. I didn't have to call a travel agent. And so the fact that you can Google a lot of information now means that even in the realm of basic knowledge, let alone all the other things that move to a market, we have less need to contact other people. So we both have, somewhat paradoxically, more ability to connect with other people and fewer and fewer reasons to do so. What got in the way of writing this book? It's a beautiful book. Uh, in terms of uh, a lot of the depictions of the digital world into a print medium. Was that difficult? Well, I'd always seen it as a very visual book. So as I was writing it, it was written with the final form in mind. So it was written with the sidebars and the sort of conversations within conversations that it had. And I'd collected a lot of images. It's certainly you know, getting image permissions and everything was a little bit more work than I had recognized. Probably the thing that most got in the way of writing it is that there are all those cat videos. Yeah, it's an endless world of distraction and almost infinitely, an infinite set of relevant information. And when your research is online technology, it's very easy to say, well, I have to be online all the time. I have to see what's going on all the time. So there was, there was certainly a lot of ability to distract myself along the way from the writer's ultimate job, which at some point comes into unplugging everything and locking yourself in a room and saying, you are not leaving this room or looking at anything or getting on email or looking at another cat video until you know, this chapter has been revised and finished. The cutoff date in the publishing world is uh, frustration for many writers who are writing about current stuff. You have six months or nine months in a window. I'm hoping that this book is something that people will read for a long time. And so I actually tried not to use very many contemporary, very contemporary technologies. And there's a couple of chapters where I talk a lot about Usenet, which you know, was a very thriving technology of the 80s and early 90s, because I'm hoping that there's bigger lessons I can draw from a technology that is sort of of the past. And I write about it in the past. You can be reading it in 15 years, and it was still in the past. 
whereas it's hard to have that kind of perspective on contemporary technology. So I hope it doesn't have that. I hope it isn't that recognizable as a book of 2014 in five years. You seem to get argumentative towards the end of the book by by chapter 11. How would you rewrite those chapters uh, in light of what's happened in the past year in terms of data and personal privacy? Uh, how has your thinking about that changed? I, you know, I don't think it's changed that much because what I had been writing about there was, you know, included the idea that there is government surveillance. What I wanted to clarify in that chapter is that there, well, one of the things um, is that there's, there's a lot of different eyes looking at us, and there's governmental eyes, there are the eyes of hackers, there are the eyes of advertisers, and there's the eyes of other people, and there are privacy concerns with all of these, and um, they don't, I don't think the revelations are that different, I don't, I think it's, What's happened with the NSA is shocking, but not surprising. And I had written that chapter a couple of years ago, but with the assumption that there was massive government spying, at least potentially. So, and I think that the privacy issues we have with other people are the ones that are really acute with social media. How do we want to be perceived by our neighbors, by our friends? How do we want to maintain control? over our online identity. And that's a somewhat different issue than a very, very powerful government that can look at not just your social communication, but your health records, your work records, all kinds of things that have nothing to do with your use of social media. I think the stuff that the NSA may be looking at with individuals in the United States has, or elsewhere, has very little to do with, you know, are you on Facebook or not? You're not suddenly exempt from being spied on because you're not on Facebook. But we've had government spying scandals long before we had email. I'm just thinking of in the past month, the Facebook experiments, news of the Facebook experiments coming out uh, in manipulating us uh, on our walls. Uh, constant growing pains for social media, it seems. For me, I mean, a lot of the controversy is a research environment issue over you know, the use of IRBs or not using IRBs and what is proper research protocol. I think for users of Facebook, that's not a key issue, but what it did was highlight for people how manipulated the um, news feed is. And there, it's a bigger issue than that particular experiment because our mental model of how we communicate socially, there's very important cues about whether people respond to you or what you expect people to know of when you've written something to them. And there's very little transparency in Facebook about whether your message got delivered or not. And it might have gotten delivered to some people or not to others, or maybe only after 10 people liked it did the other 80% of your friends see it. It's completely unclear to people who has the ability to see what they've written or not. So it's not like even being a writer where you want to have something published, you can't guarantee that the New Yorker will publish you, but you know if they did or they didn't. Here, you're just in this gray limbo. You see it on your feed, but does anyone else? And I think that is the issue here of to what extent is your, um, your words 
meant to be about social exchange and the issues of it's your learning experience that people stop listening to because you're boring, or should you be packaged up as a form of entertainment to keep people interested in a service? And there's a real tension there. You seem to long for those Usenet groups when uh, back in the 1990s, uh, when you could just see who was online, which you can't even do with some of the social media today. And I think of using uh, real-time analytics, uh, being able to see who is on my website at any given time. Uh, why can't we turn that around or, or flip that uh, upside down or flip that inside out for the user? I mean, that notion of it being flipped is that, and I think that's where the, the sense that there's privacy issues there also, is that it's that a strong sense that a lot of the interfaces and information that are gathered online are used almost entirely for advertising in particular. You know, the analytic Google Analytics is meant to help you get advertising and sort of, you know, aim that in the right direction. But that's information that is socially very interesting to people and the development of an audience and how you can maintain your sense of self in that space, knowing those audience issues is really important. So Part of the book is a, a manifesto for there to be more information provided to in an interesting way to people that's the social information that they are generating. What else are people writing in this space that's exciting you right now, either at MIT or elsewhere? I mean, there's a, lot, a tremendous amount of interesting writing coming out about, um, well, certainly the privacy issues are galvanizing a lot of writing. There's so many things that are happening today that hit upon this. It's hard to, to limit it. For instance, you know, even Technology Review this month is about an article on life logging. Um, that's a, a fascinating related piece to look at that question of how do we want to represent the past. Um, some of the interfaces I write about in this book deal with um, how do you deal with all your past email. And in the article on life blogging, they quote Gordon Bell saying, well, you know, I use this to, you know, to figure out, like, was I really at that meeting or when did this happen? And that's one of the arguments that I make, that most of the things we really want in the past really aren't to get those facts. We want to see patterns. Um, so that's another dimension where we can be looking at data and patterns. There's all the work in, uh, in big data but there's still very little thinking about the social purpose of that. And again, I think a lot of that has to do with people looking for specific answers to questions as opposed to um, large pictures. I think some of what's exciting too to see are things like the lively commentary in the New York Times. Like the, the way the experience of reading a newspaper has been quite transformed by seeing the comments and how other people read these stories, you know, I think there's other things they could do with the interface to it, but, you know, for now, I'm very happy simply to see the existence of things like that. I think there's a lot more space for that type of looking at information as the foundation for discussion. What about your MIT education? How is it being put to good use in this book? I came to MIT as a programmer, but I, but I became a much, much better programmer and engineer and designer at MIT. And the early days of the web, one of the reasons it spread so quickly was that it was very easy to just see a page you like, copy it, and start your own from that. 
And so I think the biggest part of my MIT education was that development of thinking of all the things you can make yourself. And I hope that that returns to our online spaces. A lot of the places you see online now, you can, you can certainly add content, you can add photography, you can add art. So there's, I think, a lot of realms for people who are very expressive that way. But I'd like to see the sort of magic of programming start to spread. And what are you reading for pleasure right now? I have such piles of books. Actually, oddly enough, what I'm reading now is Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, which I had never read before. And But it's a fascinating stream of consciousness of the inner lives of all these people in post-World War I London. I guess the connection with this book would be that it shows the fascination we have in the minutia of other people's lives, of just understanding what makes another person who they are. Judith Donath's new book, The Social Machine, is now available online or at your favorite local bookstore. Judith Donath, thanks for talking with me. Thank you very much for having me.